place. All right, I'm so glad you're here. Um, here's the question I'd like to start with. <clears throat> Have you ever been challenged to prove it? <laughs> like prove your identity or um, prove your ability or maybe prove your sincerity. Has anyone ever challenged you to prove it? Like prove your love or prove that you're brave enough or prove that this is really what you believe? Have you ever been challenged to prove it? Has, has anyone ever confronted you and tried to establish a certain set of terms, like create a test, establish some condition that you needed to meet in order to demonstrate to them some truth or some claim? Like, for instance, are you committed to this team? Well, then demonstrate your commitment through this massive sacrificial act of time or money or whatever. Do you have what it takes to do this job? Well, prove your ability by some big feat of strength. Are you good enough to be loved? Are you good enough to be accepted? Well, then prove your worth by some remarkable demonstration of value. This is, this is how it goes. Have you ever been challenged to prove it? Today we're going to look at a scene in the life of Jesus where he is challenged to prove his identity and he's challenged to prove his ability. And what we want to discover together here is how Jesus rejects what is false. That's important because it will teach us how to reject what is false. That's important because we want to resist temptation like Jesus does. And we want to discover how Jesus demonstrates what is true so that we too can demonstrate what is true. In other words, so that we can prove it in a way that is Christian, which is very unique and different from the way our culture proves things. So in case you're new with us today or haven't been around for a couple of weeks, we're in this series for the season of Lent. Lent is a 40-day series leading up, or season leading up to the celebration of Easter, which is the biggest day in the Christian year, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. This teaching series during the season of Lent is called 40 Days of Clarity. We're talking about temptation. We're talking about deception. We're talking about your true identity. And my hope is that by looking carefully at the story of the temptations of Jesus, which are recorded in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, we will better recognize evil and the ways that we are tempted. We'll gain insights into how Jesus resists temptation so that we too can resist temptation. And ultimately, we will see ways, friends, in which we pretend, in which we wear masks, see the lies that we are tempted to or are living into, the false identities that we still try to maintain so that we will receive, ultimately our goal is that we will receive the courage that we need to become our true selves, the people that we were created to be. So we're looking for clarity. That's the bottom line. That was a lot of words there, but we're looking for clarity. We're digging into themes like evil and deception because we're looking for clarity. Now, the, the, t the sermon today is titled, What is Stronger Than Might? And I want to look at the second temptation of, of Christ, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 4. The key verses are in your notes. Let me back up, give you a little background, and then we'll read these verses. So the end of chapter 3 of Matthew is the scene of Jesus' baptism. The, the high point of the baptism of Christ is this experience where the, the, the sky is torn open and a voice from heaven says, This is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. And then chapter 4, right into it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We talked about this last week. Here's the second temptation, verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, a few observations about this. The first two are relatively surface. You probably see them right away. First, Notice that Satan is still focused on Jesus' identity. That's his real focus because that's where the real battle rages. Forty days earlier, Jesus is baptized. He comes out of the waters of baptism. Voice from heaven says, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. Now, 40 days later, the adversary is questioning those very words of the devil. If you are the son of God. In other words, the adversary is suggesting that Jesus should question what God has already declared. And if Jesus won't question it, then he should prove it's true. He should prove it. In other words, the focus of the second temptation is the same as the focus of the first. It's Jesus' identity. But the second observation is this. The method changes in the second temptation. Did you see that? Last week, we saw how Jesus resists temptation There's a variety of things that he does to resist temptation, but the most obvious is he quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Satan takes note. He's a copycat. He can't create anything. He's just an imitator. He takes note, and in temptation number two, Satan uses scripture to tempt Jesus, which is crazy, which is really bold. The devil took him to a holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, Verse 6 says, if you are the son of God, Satan says, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then the devil quotes a sentence from Psalm 91, which is a beautiful prayer of the loving protection of God. That's what he's going to use. This is crazy to think about because basically you have the written word being used by Satan to tempt the living word. I mean, it doesn't even make sense. He, he's in way over his depth here. It's crazy. There's a lot of stuff written about this, how Satan twists scripture, how he misunderstands scripture, how he only quotes part of scripture, the only part that's advantageous to him. How stupid is he to look at one verse in Psalm 91 and not look at the very next, which says the anointed of God will trample the serpent. I mean, he, he misses the very next verse. It would, it would undo what he's saying. Basically, Satan's playing out of his league. He has no idea what he's doing, but he's trying to use what Jesus used last time to resist temptation, now to his advantage. And that's my point. Before all of the details about how Satan uses scripture, I hope that we can recognize simply this. The adversary will use whatever he can to tempt you. He'll use whatever he can to tempt you. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is out of bounds. He'll use your family. He'll use things that are important and valuable and good to tempt you. The goal is the same. Jesus says the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Any offer that he gives you is a facade. He's only here to kill, steal, and destroy. But the goal is the same. But the methods are always changing. 
right? He's pulling different plays out of the playbook. He's looking for vulnerability, and that's where he's going to try to exploit you. Nothing's off limits for him. So two observations more on the surface are these. The goal, the focus, I should say, of, of, uh, of Satan's temptation is Christ's identity, because that's where the battle really lives. And the method is always changing. The method's always changing. So here now, let's go a little deeper. This third and final observation, a little bit deeper beneath the surface. In the second temptation, Satan not only questions the identity of God's son, he goes to work on Jesus's confidence in the affection of the father for him. He goes to work on Jesus's confidence in the father's love. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here and essentially daddy will take care of you. It's essentially what he's saying. The second temptation is a considerable step up from the first temptation in terms of intensity and complexity. It's very nuanced. In the first, Satan essentially suggests that Jesus take care of his own needs. Are you hungry? Well, make bread for yourself. You can do it, right? And that's a hard temptation. The next one's harder. Temptation number one Satan is addressing Jesus' appetites and Jesus' abilities. And that's hard. But this next one's way harder. The second temptation, the devil also calls into question the father's willingness to take care of his son. And if not his willingness, his ability to take care of his son. So this cuts. We were at a funeral on Thursday for a five-month-old baby which is just terrible. It's just all terrible. And the tragedy of an experience like that is put into clear focus when the mother comes up and says, I prayed to God that he would save her, and he didn't. So what was it? Did he not want to? Or was he not able to? This is, this is where Satan's playing around right now with Jesus. Why don't you throw yourself off this temple? Why don't you trust your father with your life? See how strong your confidence is in God's willingness, or if not his willingness, his ability to save you. In either case, how confident are you, Jesus, in your father? And are you willing to prove it? So this temptation is worse than the first, in my opinion. The first temptation is, is, a, is an attack on Jesus' ability. The second temptation, Satan pulls the father into the fight. He's calling out Jesus' dad. It's kind of like the difference between somebody insulting you and somebody insulting your mother. It's just a different level, right? It's just a different kind of insult. Um, it's one thing to be able to ignore a personal challenge You'd be doing pretty well if somebody insults you and you can keep on walking, but you start saying stuff about my mom, you start attacking the integrity and the ability of my dad, and I, I start to, this is much more difficult for me to maintain a Christian response. And I'll just share this with you. The, the time in the last few years when I came the closest to fully losing it was when somebody insulted my wife 
I mean, I, my feet are barely on the ground anymore. I'm hardly rational at this point, right? Because to, to insult me is one thing. To start to pull into question the relationships that I have, the affection, the commitments, the allegiances with others that I am in relationship with, whoo, we're at a whole nother level now, aren't we? We're at a whole nother level. It's next level temptation, this temptation number two. You see how it's deeper than the first? You see how it cuts more personally in some sort of nuanced way, even though it's not just about him now? And, and so when this kind of thing happens, when it's not just an insult about you, but it's more of a general mockery of all of your love and affection and relationships and the truth that, it, that is held therein, you find yourself getting drawn into these situations where your confidence in this other person is being challenged. It's difficult. If somebody says, your father can't take care of you, and you're like, yes, he can. And they say, well, your father won't take care of you. And you're like, yes, he will. And they say, no, he won't. And you say, yes, he will. And they say, no, he won't. And you say, well, I'll prove it, right? That's the, that's the feeling that comes. It's like, well, I'll show you. You get sucked right up into this tit for tat. You got to sort of play according to my rules. This is what's happening. I'll show you. So the, different people, friends, characterize the essential temptation of, of Christ, the second temptation. They characterize it differently because there's so much happening here. But what, what I see is Satan taunting Jesus <clears throat> with a challenge to prove his power, prove that he is the Son of God, prove that he is who he says he is through some dramatic spectacle of strength that demonstrates, that shows everybody that he is divinely favored by God. In other words, Satan essentially says, stand at the highest point of the temple, stand above the law and the prophets. Stand above the sacrificial system. Stand above the historic priesthood, above all the worshipers. Stand in the epicenter of the Jewish experience, the temple, and then throw yourself down and prove your sonship by forcing your father to rush in and rescue you with all of the angelic powers at his disposal. In other words, survive what you cannot survive unless you are really the son of God. Why don't you show everyone just how powerful you really are? Why don't you prove your confidence in your father's power, which is also your power, if you really are his son? So I think the essence of this complex temptation is to prove it through power. It's a temptation to prove the truth through power. Prove it through a dramatic demonstration of might. Parade your whole arsenal down the street, all of your weaponry, your soldiers saluting in reverent allegiance. Show the whole world just how strong you are. Show your might. Or how about this? Fly fighter jets over the Super Bowl crowd at the end of the national anthem to tell the whole, you know, just flex your muscle just a little bit. Tell the whole, the whole world, everybody who's watching, just how mighty you are. Why don't you just prove it? Silence the adversaries with shock and awe. Just show them how superior you are. Leave no doubt so that everyone who is watching understands. How will they understand? Through a dramatic demonstration of power. And so this is essentially what the uh, adversary says to Jesus. Throw yourself down. That's what he actually says. 
What is that? What is throw yourself down? It would be a dramatic spectacle of power to survive what cannot be survived unless you actually are God. Um, Side note on this phrase, because I'm going to talk more about it next week, but just an interesting side note. There's a fourth century Christian leader named St. Jerome. He's famous because he translates the Bible into Latin. He's the first one to do that. He has a sermon on this text. The sermon is all about how limited Satan is. And Jerome points out that Satan, he uses different words, but essentially he says, Satan cannot push you. He can only persuade you. He cannot push you. He can only try to persuade you. Throw yourself down is what he says to Jesus. Throw yourself. He is able to persuade, but he cannot throw you down. He cannot throw you down. Everybody's heard the phrase, the devil made me do it, right? Oh, the devil made me do it. That's the real trick. The devil can't make you do anything. He can get in your head and he can convince you of some pretty scary things. But that's as far as his influence can go. He can't force you. He can only try to persuade you. He cannot push you. He can only try to talk you into jumping. So I'll talk more next week about the battle that happens in our mind. That'll be the last sermon on this series. Satan's trying to get inside Jesus' head. He's tempting him to prove God's love through some dramatic demonstration of power. How does Jesus respond? (laughs) His response is remarkable restraint. It's like convicting level restraint against all this inner turmoil, direct challenge, drama, spectacle against this twisted craziness of Satan quoting scripture to Jesus. Jesus resists temptation by simply saying, well, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't need to prove it. (laughs) All right, I'm not playing your game. I don't need to prove my identity to you. I don't need to prove God's love for me to you. I don't need to prove my identity, God's ability. I don't need to prove it, at least not in this way, not according to your rules, not in some dramatic display of power for for what, your sake and the sake of the world, not through some big display of might. And that's it. The scene is done. But the story that gets opened here, the loop that gets opened here, it continues all through uh, the, the Gospels. So in this passage, all we see is Jesus resisting temptation. We see how Jesus doesn't demonstrate his power, but we don't see how he does demonstrate his power until much later when his public ministry starts. And then for three years, we see it over and over and over again. Jesus demonstrates his true identity, Jesus demonstrates the confidence that he has in the Father. He demonstrates his real power. How does Jesus demonstrate all of these things? How does he do that? By demonstrating, by showing with his words and with his actions something that is stronger than might. What is stronger than might? It's mercy. It's mercy. It's this voluntary willingness to extend kindness where kindness is not even deserved. In other words, the proof that Jesus is the Son of God is not some prideful public display of power that makes everybody go, wow, the proof comes in authentic acts of mercy. 
And what emerges is a major theme in Jesus' ministry is the proof or the demonstration of the truth that comes not through power, but through mercy. Mercy is kindness, goodwill shown to people, whether they deserve it or not. Mercy is readiness to help those in trouble, whether they're in trouble because of their own fault or not. Well, they deserve that. You're right. That doesn't affect mercy because mercy is a readiness to help people who are in trouble because of their own fault. They've done the wrong thing. That's established and it's not being questioned. (laughs) They've done the wrong thing. The demonstration of real power is to offer mercy to that person. Mercy is not popular. Mercy doesn't win elections. Mercy is not seen as masculine. If you offer mercy to people, you'll be called soft and weak. But quietly, throughout the New Testament, what is held up as the real sign that you get it, what is held up as the real sign of spiritual power, real power, life-changing, world-rearranging power, a power stronger than might, is mercy. It's mercy. Let me show you just a few examples quickly. We'll pop through these. I want to show you how this theme gets slowly built. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Matthew 9, he's talking to a bunch of religious experts. Jesus says, why don't you go learn what this means? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come for righteous people, I've come for sinners. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus tells this parable, this story about a servant who goes completely in debt to his master. He's got more than a lifetime of debt that he owes the master. The master forgives the debt. Then the servant goes outside, finds a fellow servant that owes him $2 and starts choking him, saying, pay me back. And then the master walks in and says, Shouldn't you have shown mercy to that guy like I just showed mercy to you? Jesus is trying to make a point. What is the, power, what is the powerful act in that? It's to extend mercy. The powerful person is the one who extends mercy. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. In other words, you're so focused on keeping all the rules, you tithe so exhaustively that you're even giving a tenth of your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the things that are important to Jesus. Mark Chapter 5 tells this awesome story about Jesus going across this lake, finding this man who lives in a cemetery. He's totally deranged. He's crazy powerful. They say he's filled with a legion of demons. He's naked. He's beaten everybody up. It's a mess. Jesus heals him. He wants to follow Jesus, be one of Jesus' followers. Jesus says, you're not going to follow me. Instead, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This guy's like, I've never gone to school. I don't know any of your story. I don't even know. It's okay, because you know what you need? You need to know about mercy. And once you understand mercy, you just go tell people about that, because that's what changes lives. This is the message that is way more powerful than might. 
A couple more examples. There's the famous story of the Good Samaritan. You've probably heard of a Good Samaritan. This is a parable that Jesus shares about this guy who's walking along, gets mugged, beat up, thrown in a gutter. Religious guy comes by, crosses the road, stays away from him, keeps walking. Another religious guy crosses the road, keeps walking. And then a Samaritan, who from a Jewish perspective is an inferior race, it's a racial prejudice here that Jesus delightfully includes just to get you. So the Samaritan is the one who helps the guy out, pulls him up out of the gutter, bandages his wounds, takes him to a place, gives him some food and all that stuff. And Jesus asks his audience, who has kept the essence of the law of God? Who's the neighbor here? And one honest guy says, it's the one who showed mercy. And Jesus is like, yep, now go do the same thing. It's about mercy. And then if you like short statements, read James, because he's awesome at it. This is Jesus' brother. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is so hard for us to get. It's so hard for me to get. And it's because every action movie ends with judgment triumphing. And I like it. I like it when movies end like that. I like it when the bad guy gets what he deserves. I appreciate that sense of justice in the world. And we're not removing that. That is part of the bigger story. But what James is saying is that there is a power that, is on dis- that when displayed is more powerful than the power of judgment. And it's the power of mercy. When you see mercy happening before you, it carries a bigger punch than even seeing uh, judgment happen. That's challenging for me to believe until I start thinking about specific examples. And then I go, wow, yeah, that actually did change my life when that happened to me. So I'd summarize by saying this. It's when you're insecure in who you are. It's when you're insecure about whether or not you're loved by God. It's when your confidence gets shaky that you fall into the temptation to prove it through acts of power. The person trying to prove to you that they're stronger than you through acts of power is insecure about their power. But when you know who you are and you know that you're loved by God, when your confidence in God is strong, that's when you have the real strength to do the really hard thing, which is extend mercy to the one who doesn't deserve it. That's stronger than might. What's stronger than might? Mercy is stronger than might. What is the Christian response to the challenge to prove the truth through power? The Christian response is prove the truth through demonstrations of mercy. That's the Christian response. It challenges some of the basic narratives of our culture. So I'll just wrap it with a couple of questions, and these are just meant to be kind of personal reflection questions. Can you, can you remember a time when you were shown mercy? That's the question. Can you remember a time when what you were given was not what you deserved? It was better than what you deserved. Maybe somebody forgave a loan. Maybe you, to- maybe you wrecked the car on your first day at the job and they let you stay there and keep working for them. Can you remember receiving a good thing that was actually way better than what you deserved? Do you remember the power of being shown mercy? How that made you feel? That sense of relief. Oh, really? You're not going to make me pay for it? 
Do you remember the way that motivated you? Do you remember how receiving mercy was actually more effective than receiving a harsh punishment would have been? We need to remember where we've been shown mercy if we have a chance at showing mercy to others. So there's the second question. Who are you frustrated with right now? Uh, who's bugging you really bad right now? Who is difficult to love in your life right now? And maybe, maybe it's someone whose actions actually do deserve negative ramifications. You know, maybe it's somebody who it would be really easy for you and all your friends to say, yeah, just let them get what they deserve. Someone who is causing trouble because they're in trouble. And so they're just making more trouble. The question is this. Is that someone to whom you could show mercy? Is that person potentially a gift to your soul, which is so tempted to be the big, strong, mighty person and, and has such a hard time extending mercy? And now here's this opportunity, potentially. C could you be merciful to this person? They don't deserve it. Exactly. That's why it's mercy. Instead of striking back, instead of proving your superior strength, instead of uh, proving your superior intellect, your superior position, could you instead respond to them in a way that mirrors Christ? Could you extend mercy? Let's pray together. Let's pray for help. Lord, we need help with this. This is, this is a different ethic than most of us have been raised to embrace really when things get hard. It's, it works in the ideal but when people start insulting people and people start really hurting people, it's very difficult. And so I ask, ask for your grace. I pray for help. We need the spirit of God to strengthen us to respond and to demonstrate the truth by, by handing out mercy, by extending mercy. Not saying what you did to me is okay. It's not okay. But by extending mercy recognizing that we have been given mercy. So build our confidence up, Lord, in who we really are. Build our confidence up in your love for us. And may your strength in us be so strong that we can respond with mercy. Help us today in our relationships, our families, our homes. Help us tomorrow at work. In Jesus' name, amen.